Hello, everybody. Welcome to Learn with Lowell's show. Today, we're joined with Slater Viktorov. He is the founder and CTO of Indico, an enterprise AI solution for unstructured content that emphasizes document understanding. You can think about this po- uh, this topic today as centering around writing, business, leadership, tech, recruiting, learning, and AI, as well as MMA and a bunch of other topics, which is actually a lot of fun. Uh, just to give you a quick rundown of what, uh, some of the topics we get into, we discuss Dune, the fiction uh, novel. We discuss Richard Feynman facts, uh, how he listens to customers, set features, and builds the right stuff, which actually really it's really hard to do um, in tech. Writing and world building and how he translates to business, that's actually really interesting to see the how useful just being a creative writer is to thinking about and structuring your business life. Uh, how he builds great in himself and how he uses MMA with... Uh, uh, customers and uh and how it just in general influences his life he doesn't uh, he doesn't attack anyone that's a joke um we get into that in the episode um so thank you for joining us today with the learn little show and let's stay curious and learn about victor which dune version do you like the most do you have do you appreciate the recent dune movie or is it the early 2000s or i think there's even an older one but like those two the two most recent ones the miniseries and the one that just came out i think are really really top notch so i'm curious which one is like your go-to if you're watching dune yeah so i i will say i haven't actually seen uh the miniseries uh um, oh, it's really good yeah uh yeah. I, so i i i will say i there's a special place in my heart i think for one of the other ones you're talking about uh even though it never actually got made but yodorowsky's dune oh i heard um, about it yeah it's a big yeah deal. Yeah, just because like Jodorowsky is this like really wacky and, and like by the way, like not not very good guy. He's like one of those directors that's like, oh, the art is so important and does a lot of like really really weird stuff to uh, to maintain that. Um, but I just thought it was such an interesting idea to have like such an avant garde kind of recreation of Dune. I, I think the movie is great just because I think it does a you know good faithful rendition ish you know like i think it's always a very hard thing to figure out how to translate a book into uh into a movie and especially something like doom where you've got this omniscient narrator and and so much of what makes it cool is kind of knowing what everyone is thinking in a scene um but but i think i think they did a good job you know making it kind of interesting in its own right yeah i like how in the recent one and i would recommend the miniseries it's really yeah i'll have to check that out i think well it seems to me that the recent movie is going to be made in a similar way to the miniseries because this is it is literally part one and i don't think it's gonna be two parts like i, I think it's gonna be like at least three parts so we're gonna have like a little lord of the ring lord of the rings thing happen without it being deliberately like lord of the rings they made it all in one go this mm-hmm. one's like is it good enough all right we're gonna keep going all right is it good enough we're gonna keep going but yeah, like but the production I, value is just so great i i hope they honestly go even even wider than that you know because like I, I just can't help but think about like dune you know the first book and how little of the broad dune universe that gives you you know like like i feel like you get to the end of the first dune book and you're like that was cool but i understand so little right yeah um and, and so i i hope they're they're playing around with some kind of like new mcu or something like that because i feel like there's a lot of appetite i think they've like proven it out you know making these really epic high production value like you know 10 12 things where you know they put out a new uh new movie every year you know mm-hmm. i'd love to see more of that that'd be awesome uh well, some of the things that were really interesting in the newest one is how, like, they really allowed the prophecies to show, like, like they were, like, they weren't real. Like, they weren't, they were real, but they weren't real. So it wasn't like they were giving you the answers. And so you had to kind of, like, play. So it was, like, it was, like, a fun thing where sometimes when you have prophecy in, uh, in fiction, where it's, like, all right, well, tomorrow I'm getting struck by lightning and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's boring. Where yeah. with Dune, it's like, you have this prophecy, something's going to happen. And then you end up having to like murder that person. And he shows you through murdering him what the, what, what it's actually like to be Fremen and of the desert. Like, but his death was him teaching you. It wasn't his actual friendship. So it was just like a, such an interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, I, I I always also just thought that the portrayal of of the Bene Gesserit was so uh, it was just like such a gripping kind of twist on a secret society to like bring out the first time around, right? And to have that kind of interesting twinning between that kind of spiritual prophetic side, right, with also kind of this very you know like calculating political machinations are just like usually not things that you see together but i think it's just like I, I don't know it's a really really cool bit of world building i feel like yeah i don't think in the book series they ever touched on this but the idea that they dump paul and then the mom on the planet and they don't think 
like the spice which literally supercharges people is not gonna have an effect they're like i'll just go there you know hope yeah. you survive <laughs> but it's like, like they're like like snorting nos and like breathing it in all the time and that's what yeah. Paul started having his like uh, visions and stuff. Like he just started snorting Nos essentially. Yeah, I mean, spice. like I I have to say, like for for all of the things that I love about Dune, one of the very fair characterizations is like Frank Herbert was actually not like a very consistent world builder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that you know it's, it's it's very clear that a lot of these ideas were just like this would be super cool, right? It's like why why does space cocaine power uh, <laughs> space spacecraft, right? Like. Mm-hmm because it's cool right I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that right you know I, I really like the the bits of like pseudoscience that he puts around it and like the consistency and I think it makes it really like nice but yeah I mean I think that that is that is kind of like part of what you get in the dune dune universe like there are those little uh little quirks of like yeah like it's like for for you know these these pseudo all-knowing beings like I have no idea how they could have not seen that coming right yeah and then you don't have like a you don't have a traditional hero story like paul is not a traditional i'm trying like for people who don't know i don't want to be mean and like spoil this but like it's been out for like 30 years it is (laughs) not he's not aragorn right he's not like he's not gonna go and he's gonna be king or whatever by the end like he literally's like well you know what happens like it is not what you think it's like he's like i don't like this prophecy stuff and then he does something that is not what you think the hero would do um we probably should just, you know, spoiler tag this and say what we're talking about. I spoiler tag for anyone who doesn't want to know what this is. Yeah, you know, he just, just like abandons and goes into the desert. Like that's such a weird thing. And doesn't he like blind himself too? Like, like you wouldn't. Yeah, to 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 like see more clearly or whatever. Yeah, he he has like this crusade and then he just gives up. He's like, you know, I'm gonna go live in the desert. This is my home now. And then his like son yeah. finds him, and then his grandkids are like dune worms. It's, like such a weird concept. Yeah, I mean, I I think that one of the things that I didn't really appreciate about Dune, even reading through it the first time, is how weird it is to like tell a story from that omniscient point of view as Mm. well, right? Because that is one of the things it's like, it's very much, even though like, you know, Paul is the the main character or whatever, it's very much not the story of like, like you said, like Paul going and becoming a hero, right? It's like, it's the story of this planet, right? And like, Paul is important, right? And like a really pivotal figure, but it's, it feels like much more the story of the planet and Paul is there, which to your point, right. It's like absolutely not, not a traditional hero narrative at all. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I don't know if you're in like nonfiction as well, but the Dune is, is kind of like Lawrence in Arabia, like the, the Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Uh, basically the spice is oil <laughs> and like the Fremen are the, the, uh, the Arabs that are having a revolt to kick the Ottomans out. It, it's like it's kind of close i mean no one turns into worms but you know it's like you, you can kind of i feel like he took that base and he, he moved it from there but i'm reading a, yeah i'm reading a book on the subject i think it's lawrence in, a, in of arabia or something like that it's a great book i highly recommend it yeah yeah i yeah no i mean i i read a lot but i haven't uh haven't read that in particular yeah are, are there other go-to sci-fi series or books that you you typically recommend to people like if you make a new friend you're like, yeah, you got to check this out so we can talk about these. Do you have anything like that? Yeah. So I think it depends, you know, how, how, you know, I think there's sort of this spectrum from science fiction to fantasy, right? And it depends a little bit, you know, where they dial in there. I think that my favorite just like go to, you know, as hard as I like to get on the sci-fi side is really Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, and one actually, I think worth mentioning specifically, because I think they're coming out with a, a series or a movie around it is a Rendezvous with Rama. Um and that was one of my first pieces of, I think, like really hard sci-fi. And just to like, you know, kind of highlight the, the story, not to give anything away, but um, it's sort of like, a, you know, an alien spacecraft shows up and it's the story of these scientists like going, figuring out what on earth this thing is. And I think one of the things that he does so well, because Arthur C. Clarke was, you know, a, a kind of respected scientist in his own right, is this very, very human story in a really bizarre situation. Right. It's like, how do really ordinary scientists react when you put them in the middle of this, uh, you know, like highly imaginative, bizarre uh, alien craft? Um, and, and he's just he's just a really, really good writer. You know, I, I know 2001 A Space Odyssey is like obviously his, his most famous work, but I think that, you know, the quality of all of his stuff is really, really high. I'm a big fan of his uh, writing on science. Like he he very he's able to to describe chemistry and other concepts in such a way where it's, it's kind of fun, even if it's dry, even this is coming from someone who reads textbooks all the time, but like, yeah, he, but like he makes it a little bit more fun. 
And I, well, I think, I it's think more there's digestible. Like, such an amazing value in making science digestible, right? I mean, I think Feynman is probably the the most common example of that, you know. And and it, it's so interesting, I think, hearing Feynman talk about it uh, himself because you know I, I went and read, you know, surely you're joking, uh, Mr. Feynman, mm -hmm. and you know just understood the sheer wealth of research he contributed to, right? Just amazingly prolific. Then, you know, he wins the Nobel Prize for this particular kind of diagram. And he's very almost um, self-effacing, right? He's like, oh, you know, like I won the Nobel Prize for, for drawing pretty pictures, right? Uh, but, but, you know, I think it's, it's so much the inverse of that, right? Is he came up with this very simple analogy for extremely complex uh, behaviors and reactions, right? And I think that it's interesting on two ways, right? That that is the thing that they point to as the greatest contribution he ever made. And then at the same time, how he almost doesn't give himself credit for it because, you know, it's, it's not real science, it's just explaining science. Um, so I, I think it is both incredibly useful and not paid enough attention to by most folks. Yeah, and he had a weird life. He started out, he was working on the Manhattan Project. He, he was just constantly, this is a funny anecdote. I don't know if you had like your favorite uh, final fact, but mine is that he would, he gets so irritated by there being like so many compartmentalizations of during the, the building the bomb that he would just go into these people's offices and just break into them and take the files. And then he'd have like a, his own special file box with all the information. And he would just constantly getting in trouble for it. I love that. I, I think one of my favorite like Feynmanisms ever is like, if you don't know what's going on, ask a question. Mm -hmm. um, or he like goes through and like someone's walking him through, I, I want to say like some early nuclear, nuclear reactor. And he knows absolutely nothing about reactor design. You know, he's like this physics guy, right? So, you know, he's like, I don't, I don't even know why they called me in here, but they think I'm an expert for some reason. So they're like blueprints, blueprints, blueprints. And he points his hand. He's just like, all right, randomly, he points at some valve and he's like, what happens if that fails? And, and, and the guy goes and like reads through it. It's like, oh, well, oh, wait a minute. And, you know, by, by kind of the sheer random happenstance, uh, you know, he found something that didn't actually have an appropriate fail safe. Um, but but I, I think it's, it's I don't know, I, I get very frustrated with how, um, with how siloed things are today. So, you know, I, I think I resonate with that frustration very much. Yeah, especially since you, we, at our fingertips, we have the whole internet. We have the ability to connect with anyone. I, I was emailing someone from, uh, that's in Asia right now. And yeah. so it's like, you know, we, we can be having a Zoom call. You're in Boston, I'm in the Midwest, like access to all this technology yet. I mean, this is not like a new thought, but like people feel pretty like, uh, I don't know the word, uh, uh, siloed, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like communication speed helps, but if we're speaking different languages, then saying it faster doesn't, doesn't <laughs> solve all the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it's weird, like, uh, especially nowadays, because it, that is my role in a lot of ways. I have to kind of sit between the technical side and the business side and kind of customers and sort of play, uh, you know, air traffic controller almost, right? So often what I do is, you know, either, hey, I realize you two are using the same words, but you actually mean two completely different things, or even the reverse of that of like, hey, actually, you two are describing differently, but you mean the same thing. Um, and, and it's really surprising how hard it is for people to, to see just kind of how, how siloed, uh, you know, two, two different units are. Hmm. That's fair. So like you, when you interact with customers or people in your in-house, when you're trying to like build like a feature set or something and yeah. like a customer will say, I want eight, I want this, but then you have to kind of like listen to hear what they actually mean by what they, exactly. and then exactly. like translate it to your team in such a way where they understand what they're, that you could say like, they want this widget. And, and your team can say, we want this, we're going to build this widget. But then like, even like what that comes out of that pipeline doesn't mean you're going to get that widget. They might, if, it'll be like a, it's like a game of telephone. This happens a lot for people who uh, don't work in tech or just anything. Uh, how like, if you don't have safeguards or like uh, ways of making sure like people understand the vision, um, that happens a lot. Uh, but I'm curious, what are some of the processes you put in place to ensure that it's more of a direct feed, you know, one-to-one -one ratio of uh, information being translated back and forth? You know, a, a lot of what it comes down to is actually, you know, I think the game of telephone is exactly right. You know, I think that we can't hope that we're going to perfectly sort of translate from one side to the other. So we've tried to focus much more on what does that contract look like? You know, what should we be coming away from, you know, at mm -hmm. this particular stage? And, and I think one of the things, for instance, that's most critical for us is, you know, when you're out there and you're talking to customers and someone is asking for a particular feature, uh, you've made two problems there, right? Because when you're talking to customers, um, 
very rarely should they be like, this is the specific feature, you know, I want, you should be trying to direct them much more. Here are the problems that I have. Here's what I wish I could do, which is actually really importantly different from, you know, this is the specific feature that I want. Um, and then also, you know, it's about when you pass something along internally, again, you know, you should never really have your executive team say like, this is the feature that we want to build. I mean, maybe when you're five people, like that's appropriate, right? But e even at like, 10, 20 people, right? That's not really appropriate. You know, we're like 80 folks now. So it's like very, very much not appropriate, right? So instead it's much more about the executive team saying, okay, um, here's where the competitors are at, right? Here's what we should be comparing ourselves against to. Here's the success metrics, right? Uh, and here's how we're going to measure this. And here's, you know, the feedback that we've been getting. And that, that really becomes much more the bundle, right? So the, the goal is based on what we're hearing from customers, what would we be hearing from customers instead, you know, in this success criteria, right? And, and having that framing instead of, again, trying to kind of like whack-a-mole on features uh, is, you know, much more productive, I think. Yeah. The, the, this kind of goes into your writing world building aspects of your mind, because I think there's a, especially if you're a fan of Brandon Sanderson, uh, he, I think I've heard him say this, where um, if someone says, what is wrong, listen to them. But if they say how to fix it, don't listen to them. Because like yeah. they'll like they'll give you a sense of like, hey, there's something going on here. But like usually they're not the people to figure it out. Yeah, actually, I think he gives this exact uh, feedback for writing critique. And mm. it's uh, amazingly helpful, right? Because, and you know, that, that's something I do. You know, I, I write fiction, I've got a writing group. And so we give each other critique. And one of the things that's really hard is figuring out, you know, how do you critique someone else's writing? Uh, especially something like fiction, you know, it's very, very personal. And how do you kind of separate your personal opinions from from kind of whatever? And, and that's really the key, right, is your experience can never be wrong, right? You might not know how to fix it. You might not know, you know, what they should change, right? You might not even know if the experience you're having is intentional or not, right? Uh, you know, someone might be like, wow, I felt like really disoriented reading this page. And Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, right? You could take the next step about like, oh, I was disoriented, you should add like XYZ details, right? But maybe I was like, actually, you should be disoriented on that page. That's exactly how I want you to feel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's that's the real difference, right? Is like you set kind of the goal and the experience and find that delta, right? As opposed to being really prescriptive about what a solution looks like. Actually, uh, this, this is a great way to segue into a, a question I definitely wanted to ask you. When, when we talk about experiences and how they, they shape things, um, I am curious how your experience with MMA affects your, your world and business, uh, particularly, and to, to what extent it does, if, if at all, um, do you think like your, your background in MMA affects like how you, how you go about doing business? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, so I, okay. So I will say that I, uh, am very strong willed generically. So actually let me, let me maybe preface this. There's probably an answer that I would give and probably an answer that some of my coworkers would give. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the most important thing from my perspective is really the aspect of grit, right? You know, I think something that I often often say is like, you know, people in tech really hate getting hit in the face, um, which is understandable, right? But as like an MMA guy, I am very used to getting hit in the face and be like, oh yeah, you know, like good one, you know, let's keep on going. And sort of that, that sense of very healthy competition, if you will, right? So I think that's that's one place where it's like very, very, healthy is it gives you a sense of like what really matters like what doesn't like really helps you roll with the punches and build up that grit so i think that's really really helpful that's probably the answer i would give i think probably uh you know in in fairness my coworkers would emphasize the fact that you know so, sometimes i will get in in fights with customers right not like uh not like you know brutal ones obviously i'm like very very tactful but you know i have a really clear sense of sort of the correct way that people should go about AI projects, right? Uh, and, you know, there, there's a lot of hype and whatnot, and I can get somewhat combative, right? Personally, I actually see that as like very, very different from, from my MMA experience. Uh, and, and believe it or not, like when I'm doing MMA, I'm like the happiest guy in the world. The judge always has to like, you know, tell me to stop because, uh, you know, when the guy like gets a hit on me, I want to tell him good job, but you're not supposed to talk during a spar. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. There's probably two sides to that. Yeah. 
So you have customers come in and you just start wrestling them in the middle of the board. Yeah, just, just start wrestling them. It's like, look, I, I know you think that really you should be using logistic regression here, but to explain why you shouldn't, uh, we got to get in the cage. Sorry, yeah. look, I don't I make the rules. I put you in a headlock first, so you're yeah, really look, paying attention. Yeah, there's an octagon uh, down the street. Actually, we got it reserved. We thought it might come to this. So look, uh, everyone else continue on with the meeting. We'll be back in 20. I mean, if they if, if they do it and then they don't immediately abandon you afterwards, like, you know that they want to be your customer. <laughs> that's true. No, that that is a fact. You know, that that's a serious takeaway. It's like, look, if you want to buy Indico, you're going to have to fight me. Sorry. Yeah. You need to at least uh, get me to a draw. And that's how I know <laughs> yeah. you're worthy. You know, you got to like pull the sword from the stone, but like you have to like uh, get in the octagon for like 10 minutes, like, like Spider-Man oh, yeah. or something. Yeah. It's no, it's a, uh, it's tough because like sometimes people use that as a joke. So like, uh. I have to be very careful in my, in my reactions. Like someone, I think in the early days of Indico, we were at the office, like, oh, you know, like we disagreed on like the pointing for a ticket or someone, something. And we're like, oh, we got to fight in the octagon. I'm like, I mean, we could, if you want, and we're just like horrified. <laughs> yeah. I, I, to your point, I think a lot of people aren't really used to like disagreeing, I guess. Yeah. Like they're so, I think people, they want, they want to, I don't know what it is, but they, it's like uh, the confrontation of saying, Hey, you might be wrong here. I, I've 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 been in a number of places where there's just people having like a healthy disagreement. It's like, oh, this is great, and I'll just like walk off and let them have their thing. And I'll come yeah. back and like, oh, they were fighting and oh, it's like they were they like, <laughs> it's like it's it's good. Like they were yeah. these two people were sharing their experiences. Like they're being extremely respectful. There's a lot of passion. Like don't don't like you know. Thank you for letting me know you were concerned, but like, you know, jump in and maybe like offer your input next time. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I feel like that's what success looks like, right? Yeah. It's like you got to it, it's like people do naturally disagree. And, and kind of like I was saying earlier, a lot of my job nowadays is even just like two people might even be saying exactly the same words for that reason, because people naturally want to agree with each other. And like, that is good. Like coming to consensus is a really important part of the process, but it's even more important because I think people do have that strong predilection to point out. It's like, hey, you know, even though y'all both said that you want a feature that looks like, you know, whatever X, um, what about this this particular aspect? Why, right? Actually, I think y'all, you know, you two folks are thinking about this in a slightly different way. And then that's actually what gets the interesting conversation started, right? Because it is those points of tension and disagreement where you've got to make decisions. That's actually where where the interesting stuff happens, right? Like mm -hmm. you're not going to make progress without without difficult conversations and difficult decisions. I, I actually think that a team really doesn't become a team until they can disagree with each other. Like until they, like they sit there and just really are like. I think we're going in the wrong, like, this is the vision. I think this is the right set for it. And they just talk about it. And like, like they can get passionate as long as they're respectful. Like, you know, don't be mean, yeah. but like, I, like I've, I've built several teams, like uh, grown several teams. And there's a moment where like, everyone's just new, you know, cause they're growing fast and they're mm -hmm. like, I'm respectful and I'm listening to your ideas and I'm letting it go. Yeah. And, then, and then there's a moment where like, everyone's like, I have opinions and I'm sharing them. And it's like, yes, it has happened. Yeah. We're a team now and we're going to, even like everyone's like working and producing right but like that moment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is like the before and after just in terms of production how people feel the culture like is entirely night and day and i, I, I mean, have a team of like 80 so i don't know like how that uh scales with uh i think the highest the biggest team i've had is like 25 but yeah um, i mean it, it's very much the same thing that we're trying to do i would say there's there's probably a couple more steps to it now and this is another one where like i didn't think about it consciously until like some people started telling me that this was how they thought about it but actually i think it works works really well right because now when we're you know at like 80 80 folks right it used to be you know when we're 10 or 20 folks right you know i'm working with every person as soon as they enter the company right like i interviewed them i know them they know me and we can start getting into like a really productive kind of like debate and rapport from day one right yeah, I can't really do that when you're 70 or 80 folks, right? Like for someone that hasn't met me before, like having the CTO show up and be like, oh, you did XYZ wrong, like really bad. Like no, no one likes that experience. So now, but, but thankfully, right? Like everyone at the company has this really like productive growth mentality, right? So it also means like, I don't have to be their first stop there, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's much more like, you know, at the start, I'm like, you know, kind of arm's length, you know, I'm probably not going to be interacting with, you know, most new, new hires, like in their first like couple of weeks outside of like maybe a one-on-one -on -one here or there. Um, but, you know, they'll have some really productive, you know, conversation uh, with their manager probably. And I'll probably be in contact with that manager about sort of like where we want to go, but it's going to be a lot like, you know, softer, you know, like more palatable coming from them. And they sort of get used to that idea of, you know, productive conversation and, you know, how we're really going to help them grow. And it's like, look, 
and again, I think just really importantly, like it's not personal. Like we're not going to fire you because because you made a mistake, right? Like we're not we're not idiots. Uh, but you know, some companies are out there, so sometimes it does take folks some time and some coaching to get over that. Uh, but then there's kind of progression to that, where like at some point, you know, I I will see their work, right? And I will start you know commenting on it, and you know, I can I can be pretty um, aggressive. Is probably not right the word, but you know, I, I'm pretty pretty direct with my feedback. Where I'm just like it, it'll it'll usually be like page three is like awesome. This is like the best thing that I've ever seen. Like pages four through six are terrible and you need to start over, right? Yeah. So, you know, it'll be it'll be both of that on both sides. Um, but, you know, by that point, they they like feel, feel pretty good about it. And then, you know, I'll probably start working with them, coaching, getting in like a productive dialogue there. And then there's also like a really important checkpoint, you know, at the back end of that, which is the first time they kind of submit something. And I'm just like, no notes, send it along, right? Uh, and I wasn't even paying attention to that, but apparently that's a really important moment for uh, for employees too, because that's when they feel comfortable then becoming that person's like, okay, now I've meet the quality bar, right? Now I can help other people get here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, now now there's like a bunch of other folks that can kind of bring people through that that same kind of arc, but that that's kind of how it's scaled with size. That makes sense. Are there things that you do to signal to people that you're like when they're coming in that you have a different organization or their processes to get the best out of people. Because something yes. I've found is that like in the interview process, I like I have a couple of things I do that just like are basically, you don't need to give me the stupid answers. Like tell me who you are so I can I can know who you are and I'll tell you who I am so, so we can see if we'll work together. But like, Absolutely. and then when you work at places, it's like, is this really going to be what it's going to be like? Because so many, there's so many places, especially in startups where like everyone knows what to say, right? But like many places do not, believe in what they're saying yeah so so i'm curious like what do you what do you do to kind of not just signal but to show people not you know show don't tell uh yeah like new hires so they can really you know get up and do their best well like to your point it starts before the hire right like you know you really have to start this in the interview process right And, and so you know in in our interview process i think part of it is we've got honestly a really really good set of core values that we do really own and embody and uh you know a portion of that is that not only does everyone have a core values interview where we go through, you know, here are the six core values, but your performance review, you know, is actually done against those six core values as well. Um, so, so that's that's one piece that is definitely really important that shows like, yes, like we care about communication and education and, you know, this, this sort of mentality. But another piece that's really important, the way that I often say it, and actually this is, this is um, in sort of like learning about productive disagreement, uh, the way that I often say it is, at the core of Indico, we are doing something new, right? Um, that means that by definition, nobody knows the right way to do it. That means every person that joins uh, is going to have to develop some opinion about the right way of doing something. It's sort of like piloting this massive, massive ship, right? We don't know where the iceberg is going to show up, right? It's incredibly complex. We don't know where the next problem is going to be. So we need to make sure that every single employee at Indico feels confident to like raise their hand and be like, oh, there's an issue here. Or the way that I often say it, and this is kind of you know the concrete uh, benchmark that we hold ourselves to, is that me as the CTO, right? I have to be, you know, if I'm up and giving a presentation uh, to the whole company, right? Anyone at the company should feel comfortable raising their hand just in the middle, like interrupting me in the middle of a presentation and being like, no, actually, you know, that's wrong. You're full of shit, right? Um, and critically, that is leadership's job to maintain, right? That kind of environment. So just as much, and so. We tell them that we really, really mean that in the interview stage, right? But then in terms of modeling that, I think that, you know, if your executive team isn't actually modeling that for you, then it doesn't really matter, right? So we actually make a really big point as sort of, you know, the leadership team of, you know, having productive disagreements publicly, right? Of recording a lot of these Zoom sessions where it's like, wow, you know, here's us just like beating each other up on product for an hour, right? And and, and sharing all of that stuff, right? Um, Because I think that, you know, if people can't see you like really, really kind of productively disagreeing with each other. If you can't model like a respectful, productive way of doing that, you know, they're, they're not going to know how to, how to follow suit. There's some like uh, really good techniques in there that I, I enjoy. And I also completely agree that it starts with the hiring phase, which is mm-hmm. funny. Cause like people have talked to me about like, how do I have a great team? Or like, how do I like get the best out of someone when they're on the team? So well, it starts with, did you hire the right people? And it doesn't mean like the person's a bad fit, like a bad person or not good enough. It's just like, are they with like what you're going to try to do? Like, I, I think a yes. lot of, there's a lot of it's people that have the mentality. Fit. Yeah. A lot of people have the mentality where it's like, I'm grabbing a body. I'm grabbing a body. Oh, you can do JavaScript. Well, you can go do this. And it's like that person 
can do their best work at maybe a very small section of things in the world. Just like I can, just like you can. So like just putting them, like throwing money at them and saying, go do this thing means that you're potentially denying them the thing that would actually make them great, very happy in the world. But if you find the people that actually would be great on the team, then like when they come in, like everything else kind of flows better. But so it's really interesting to hear you echo that point as well that I think a lot of people miss, which is the hiring process is a key spot and not just um, finding the right people, but setting the tone for the relationship when they come in. Because a, a lot of places that I've found is that they'll have like one standard for hiring. And when they come in, it's almost, you can almost like see the whiplash on people when they're like, oh, this is what it is. Or, oh, this is what we're built. I've known people who jo- join a place and they are literally like, so what are we building? Just to double check. Cause it's like everywhere just screws with them so much. It's like, it is true. You just, you just, it, it, it's absolutely heartbreaking, right? Like, yeah. I, and I think everyone loses, honestly, when, when you do that, right? Yeah. You know, my opinion is like in, in that like culture conversation, right? You know, you should be disqualifying as many people as you're qualifying, right? And, and, that's, and that's a mutual disqualification, really mm-hmm. importantly, right? You want to make sure you're putting the candidate in a spot to disagree, right? And if the things that you're saying about your culture and your company um, aren't objectionable, if they're not arguable, if you can't say like with a straight face at the end, like some people like this, some people don't, but we're looking for people that do, right? Um, you know, th- then you haven't really, uh, you know, then you're just kind of doing apple pie kind of stuff, right? Stuff yeah. that just like sounds good, but but it's probably not realistic. Yeah. Are there, um, how do you force yourself to continue learning and trying? I, I imagine the team's a big component of this, but do you have like any mechanisms where like people that you know that are like as good as you or better, but like CTOs and other companies will like come in and like audit you for like, like kind of like how teachers do, you know, like, like they'll sit in the back and just watch how you do your job for like a day. You're like, here are so many things that you could be doing better. Cause they like, they're the person who's, st- who's removed enough to give the outside perspective to help people see how they're speaking. I'm just curious if like, if you've got I, any it's, processes it's an like that, interesting yeah. idea. Yeah, no, I mean, like I, I, it is, I, I think that the the further you get and like the the deeper into like a technical niche you you get, like the harder it is to find mentors, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. like I think that um I, I guess I guess maybe also like to be fair, like when when you're younger, like starting out or like when I was like there was just so much that I had to learn. It was like everyone had something to give me almost, right? Yeah. Um so I, I think that um it, it it has gotten a lot harder for me, right? I think that. I have started to invert things a little bit, right? I mean, like on the one hand, I'm just like desperate for peers, right? And yeah, like there, there's a couple of friends that I've got where just like, you know, just like every conversation with them is awesome. And we just like email together from time to time and that is helpful. Um, but, you know, I actually really appreciate you bringing it up, just this notion of like staying sharp, right? And, and keeping on top of stuff because I think it, like I'm terrified about it, honestly, every day, right? This idea that I'm going to get slow and the the stuff that I'm learning now is, and the way that I'm executing on it is just very, very different from what things look like in the early days, right? You know, it used to be this very direct, like, you know, I'm going through this tutorial, like I'm checking off these tickets, right? I'm building this feature in X amount of time, right? And it's just, it's different now, right? I mean, it's not, it's not better or worse. It's just very, very different. Um, I don't know. So I do a lot of advising of companies and I try to spend time with companies that are in the situation that we were in and just try to stay, you know, as up to date as possible on new stuff that's happening that way. Right. Um, And, you know, I don't have time to advise that many companies, but, you know, there's I I find like if you're very, very opinionated about like I want to work with companies that can benefit very directly from something that I have really specific experience in um, that for me has been a really good way of kind of like staying sharp, staying like marginal, because these are like really smart people that are going to going to keep you honest, right? But then also helps you like kind of pay it forward a bit, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's tough. I, I really don't have a magic bullet there. I'm like constantly trying. Uh, I'm, I'm constantly trying more stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I do some advising for other uh, startups in many different uh, domains. And it's almost like thesis testing sometimes. Like I'll have, yeah. a, like they'll talk to me. It's like, well, here's some idea. Like, here's my thought process about this idea. And here's the things I would suggest to you. And these are the ones that I'm very confident work. And these are the ones I'm like, I think that like, if I was doing a mood work, but just cause I'm a crazy person. Um, and it's like, kind of like they go out and they, they, they did the testing and it comes back. like, no, well, the one that you thought was weirdest is actually the one that did work. So, oh, great. You know? So it's like, you're, you're validating, you know, your own ideas, which is interesting of itself. Um, I, I think, this is a concept that I've been thinking about a lot myself, as you can tell, because uh, yeah. uh, I've been learning coding the last two years to build the MVP for the thing I'm building. 
and um it's it's like i'm constantly reminded how dumb i am so right? <laughs> like <laughs> so I, I literally uh i have friends that will like every now and again just like look like i'll just explain what i'm doing and i'll look at it and like don't do that <laughs> be doing this so i was like i can imagine um like maybe if you had like a like if you like literally do like a ta like a review thing where like you, you know maybe like you pay them to like have a trip with their wife or their significant other and they just kind of like follow you around for a day and then they give you like a like a, a metric based you know here's what you're doing here's some advice here's some stuff that i, I see you doing that i make the same mistakes and it's, they, they could literally be a peer or even someone junior but like just someone des- designated to review you in that way if it's not just your team doing it naturally i think that'd be I mean, really really interesting I, I i totally agree i mean i i do think it'd probably be most helpful to have like a peer or someone like yeah. a little bit more senior than it is at least or like uh, senior is a really tough tough notion right but i really like it to be someone who's like been at the same stage right yeah. in some way shape or form but um yeah, I don't know. I, I I do really feel like there is a dearth of it. It is it's like very very hard to get like crisp feedback, right? And, and like the, the question I also would just like because you know a lot of the stuff that I do now is like content production, right? Is like roadmap, you know, rejiggering, and you know it's like how it's like what's the right engagement for some? It's like what's the right amount for someone to like learn to give me helpful feedback there. And it's like what I've ended up doing is just kind of like going really, really specific of like, oh, you know, like I know someone who's like sharp organizationally or like someone who's sharp on like the ML side, but like, I don't know. And, and maybe part of this is also just like the CTO role is like really weird, I think. Um, I, I guess every C-level role is kind of weird, but it's just like people define it really, really differently in different organizations, you know? Um, and I think there's like some CTOs I've seen that are like almost MBAs and are like 100% organizational, right? And I'm very much not that kind of CTO, right? Yeah, they should be like COO or something. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that there's a lot of blurring that happens, right? But yeah, I, I think that there's, yeah, there's just like ambiguity, like, and yeah, but I don't know, I, I think that it would be a really interesting kind of model if you can find, if you find someone who is willing to do that and wants to shadow me in like AI for a day, it's like been through it, you know, let me know. Okay. I know a bunch of people, so I'll poke some people. All right, dope. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it depends on how, how you perceive uh, uh, colleague or above, but um and then at the same time, it's uh, the areas that you want to improve upon. Maybe it's not technical leadership that you want to work on, but just leadership in general. Like, how do you like manage and get the best people out of people or, or something like that? I don't know. So like to your point of uh, subdividing it down, that might be a, a like finding some of the composite skills to just be a one-off. That might be, that might be like two Narnia, but, yeah. um, but you can find like some people with uh, specialized skills in those different areas that could help. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to your like earlier point of like staying sharp, I think the place where I find myself like most aggressively in need for that kind of thing is honestly on the technical side, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and, you know, I guess part of that is just cause I'm a deep tech guy, but it's just like, but I mean, you know, you are too, so I'm, I, you know, I know you understand it, right? It's just like yeah. when you're really, really deep, you know, finding someone that you can productively bounce ideas off of is, is really hard, honestly. Uh, and, and, and it's tough, especially like deep in the technical side, right? If you don't have anyone to like bounce ideas off of, you know, that the line between brilliance and insanity can be really, really fine. Yeah, that's usually where you find it. It's just- exactly, that's the thing, right? It's like, but but you need like someone to help like, you know, bounce like when you threw it and like sort the insanity from like the gem of brilliance, right? Yeah. I, usually, I think it's uh, really hard to do solo. Yeah. I, I, are there like, um, is there like the, it's probably like revolves around your tech stack, but there's a lot of really great communities out there on discord around different frameworks. And there's usually like a couple of people on there that are always crazy and give feedback. And it's like, how do you have a full-time job and do this? Like, you're such a great, you know, like, please let me know if you ever need help with stuff. But that's like, so that's one way I find people. I literally just like go to like the oasis that they all hang out and like, uh, Find them yeah, I mean, I, I did, I spent a lot of time on Stack Overflow back yeah. in the day. I'm, 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 a, I'm a top level mod on Stack Overflow, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's, it's, I, I think it, um, I think it's doable by framework. I think it's yeah. really hard for, for again, like the, the deeper technical areas, right? Like it's really hard for me to like walk into an AI community. Uh, it was so like, A, some of them are just like run by cranks, right? And like the folks that actually know what they're doing often, often it's like, one of them and a bunch of other folks um i don't know it, it, it's just uh it's, it's just tough. and then a lot of them also just because they're like academics like really hate anything public um hmm. yeah yeah one way that um i found is that i i keep up hmm. with journal publications so i i'm on like sci hub 
Also, and, uh, this is actually an interesting thing about AI. Uh, believe it or not, the journals in AI, well, there basically aren't any journals in AI. But okay. even if you look at the very top quality journals like Nature, right, they have retraction rates that are like 40, 50% for AI, yeah. which is like, it's like makes you want to barf, right? Mm. Uh, so it's actually, it's, it's highly conference driven, which is really interesting. Okay. Uh, it's almost all open publishing, partially because uh, actually there's not, the universities in the US, like, unfortunately, are not very good uh, at AI for a couple of reasons, just like on average. Um, and you actually see in the US, much more of the research is coming out of private industry labs, which is, which is weird. Um, you know, it's got its pluses and minuses. But one of the pluses is that it means everyone is doing open publication. And so just everything is on archive. And like Elsevier is basically a non issue, which is, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It, it's a weird situation. Part of it is just like AI is like a really, really weird kind of a space. Well, are there specific areas, you know, someone might be listening right now that can help you yeah. out. Are there specific areas that you are trying to dig deeper on that you need help oh, with? Oh yeah, it's a uh, geometric deep learning, uh, multimodal fusion and uh, machine teaching. I've never All which of... are fields that debatably exist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of these things before. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm having to give you like the, the whirlwind. I think they're, they're like awesome, frankly. Yeah. What are, um, what are, what are the each of like, what are yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, machine teaching, uh, as you know, like a contrast to machine learning is this really interesting notion that if you look at traditional machine learning objectives, right. Um, people will constrain things pretty heavily, like, oh, it's a classification task or like a, a data extraction task or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and the problem is that that actually matches human experience very poorly. Um, so, so one really good example of this might be something like, a, a, you know, you've got a Twitter, right, and you're trying to do binary sentiment classification, right? So that, that's a really classic ML task. Now, obviously, if I've got a tweet that says, like, the battery is good, but the whatever, the screen sucks, um, I can't really classify that as positive or negative, right? No matter how many people I have classified that, right, there's going to be some irreducible uh, fuzziness to it. So machine teaching is really, really roughly this idea that what if instead of, you know, just classification tasks and sort of these really, really constrained problem framings that we've had in the past, if there's a way we could change our objective functions to more closely match the way that humans teach one another. Um, so it's, you know, I think one, one example of where this was applied, it was a really interesting place where OpenAI actually applied it uh, to the task of summarization. Uh, now, summarization is, is tough, but one of the toughest things about summarization is understanding which summary is better than which other summary. Uh, and so, and, and you know, it's like a very crude, almost brute force approach, right? But it is still machine teaching is OpenAI is just like, all right, well, we're just going to generate two, put them in front of a person. And a human is really good at saying like, this summary is better than that summary, even if they can't say this is a perfect summary or this is the worst summary. So we'll just have them do that. And they had to change a lot of things, you know, without getting too far into the details on the model on the back end to make it work with that target of like, this is better than that. Uh, but that's a really good example of machine teaching. And, you know, then it led to a model that was like just insanely good and summarized things really, really well. Um, so that's one, I, I just think like really cool, like amazing, amazing area of research. Uh, Microsoft came up with the term machine teaching, um, you know, maybe 18 months ago, or I don't know, maybe it's been a little, little longer than that. Um, multimodal fusion, also super, super interesting. So traditionally in AI, you've got, uh, you know, like NLP that deals with text, you've got computer vision that deals with image, right? You've got, you know, structured data techniques and like, you know, boosting for, for structured data, right? And never these techniques uh, shall meet, right? They're just like totally, totally separate fields of study, getting to that earlier uh, siloing point. Uh, and the idea of multimodal fusion is really roughly, uh, you know, and, and we use it in documents, so I'll use that example quickly, but uh, it's the idea of being able to reason across different data modalities. Um, and, and one of the, one of the actually a good example I'll give on why this is so impactful, like think about drinking a glass of water, right? Mm, extremely simple, right? Uh, you know, I barely have to think about it. Um, but think about all the systems that had to come together in my body to do that, right? You know, I've got to like feel my arm, I've got to feel the weight, I've got to balance it, right? I have to like know what temperature it is just to make sure it's not too hot or whatever, right? Now, try to imagine doing that same problem, uh, but as a purely visual task, right? So your arm is completely numb, you know, you've got no sense of taste, you've got no sense of temperature, you've not, you've got no sense of, you know, any of this. And you could still probably do it. Right, you know, like I'd probably, you know, would visually check and, you know, kind of start looking very robotic, right? You know, 
Uh, and, and you see how you take a problem that was incredibly simple and you've made it almost impossibly difficult by constraining your data modality, right? Uh, and so the idea is this is you know, the, next, the next stage for a lot of ML techniques, right? Is learning to combine these different modalities. Uh, one good example is OpenAI's Dolly that uh, goes between text and image. So it's like image captioning and, and vice versa. So you can like type something, it'll generate a, a coherent image. Uh, that's multimodal translation, which you know, makes sense translate from image to text. Uh, and multimodal fusion uh, documents are a really good example where if you think about a table, there is the literal you know, stuff that might be in the table, but the visual layout is also really, really important. Or if you think about logos or visual styling and things like that, right? it actually turns out that you have to interpret across those two different data modalities for a lot of really important document tasks. And so that's one example of where you've got to fuse the two different modalities right, of text and image right, to get to your final conclusion. Uh, you know, video is, you know, another really good example. Computationally, we're not quite at the point where we can do video. Um, but, you know, so that's, that's multimodal fusion uh, in a nutshell. Uh, and, then, and then geometric deep learning uh, is just very roughly is uh, deep learning plus very complicated math. Um, specifically, differential geometry, there is sort of based on a couple of interesting notions, but one that I find really interesting is like what is language and what are words? Um, and and one, one example of, you know, something that's really weird, you think about mouse, right? Uh, and, and there's a traditional field in ML called sort of a representation learning or transfer learning or something along those lines. And so the idea is, you know, you'd have the word mouse and you learn some definition for mouse, right? And that'll be like a, a 200 dimensional on vector or, you know, just a, you know, a, a list of 200 numbers. Uh, and, and then you think immediately, okay, great. So now I've got some meaning for the word mouse, but I've got multiple different kinds of mouse, right? So I've got computer mouse and I've got animal mouse. What do I do, right? Like what's the right analogy for that? And so the immediate one that people think about is like, well, I'll, I'll learn two different vectors. Like I'll learn two different representations, right? And I'll just figure out which mouse I mean, and then I'll use the right definition at the right time. And it turns out that's actually not quite right, um, which is sort of weird. And you can think about these because these are two different vectors, like two different positions in space. So it's actually not the case, uh, or it doesn't seem to be the case based on current research, right? Um, that you have two different locations for the two different definitions of mouse. It's actually much more that you have one central locus, right? That is mouse in all of its incarnations. And the definition you're using is more about the direction that you pass through it. Right, so it's like maybe this direction is like computer mouse, and this direction is animal mouse, um, and and you know again without going like too far down into the details, that that kind of analogy and that kind of like really weird geometric kind of trying to twin, sort of the analogies that we use in combining language and understanding how words relate to each other and trying to get sort of geometrical mathematical formalisms that you can twin with those. Um, so. Yeah, sorry, T take a deep breath. But uh, you know, those are those are those are kind of the three areas that I'm just like super super jazzed about right now. Is it possible to build like your own R and D team? I don't know how your team. I, is th that is, yeah, we did that. We have that. Okay, and they're great, and I love them, and I I talk with them. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, uh, I mean, that's probably nice too. I think in any any company I have, at a certain point, as long as I have cash flow, I'll probably have like crazy people building stuff for fun. Well, like I probably mean, related look, to what it, what's the point of building a company otherwise? Yeah, like. You never know what's going to come from it, which is kind of half the fun. It's like every day you open up a blank box and a bunny could come from it. Um, you know, I, I like we're we're a very, very kind of like R&D centric company. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's sort of like a realization that I came to a few years ago is like, if you're weird enough and interested in stuff like far enough outside the mainstream, you know, literally the, the decision to make Indico in so many ways was like, we can't wait for the US PhD uh, programs to like catch up to like where Europe and Canada are, right? So we've just got to like start doing the work uh, and the company was the best way for us to do it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird, right? But but it kind of has stayed true, right? I mean, if you look at like GPT on the ML side, right? Like that never would have happened. Like there would be no GPT series of models if it weren't for like Alec Bradford, my co-founder being like, actually, I'm going to drop out of school and just pursue ML on my own because he wasn't going to wait. What um, related to uh, your team, is there like a, like a pie wheel of percentages of like the different types of people on your team in terms of like uh, responsibility. Are you like all engineers or, and you do like sales or I don't know, like. No, 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 no. We're, we, we've got, we've got like a good size sales team that's starting to, to kind of spin up. Right. I think that the way that we 
we divide things maybe at like a slightly finer level. It's like, I, I'm going to characterize more people as being a part of the product team, like the delivery team than maybe other companies would. So, you know, uh, and, you know, one thing that's also kind of interesting about us is for us, R&D has kind of two, two equal arms. It's like the ML R&D and then UX R&D, actually, to that, that kind of machine teaching point. We find that the, the juncture of those is actually like very, very meaningful. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're uh, somewhere between 60 and 70% probably, uh, you know, technical uh, for, for some definition of that. Uh, but but getting, getting towards 50-50, but, you know, I, I think that even if you look at the folks that are technically part of our, you know, sales and marketing organization, right, or delivery organization, like, they're very, very technical folks. Like, I, I think that um, we try to make it really clear, like, you don't have to be a PhD to understand ML. Uh, and, and actually, you know, a lot of the important relevant details, uh, I don't know, like, I, we have like mini PhD sessions, almost even with folks that are going to be, you know, like, EBDRs, because I think it's really important for them to understand that kind of stuff. So, you know, they, they might be characterized as like a, a, an ML analyst or, or something like that in another organization. Hmm. Do you have like a, in your organization, like this, like brand, brown bag lunches where like people can go and like learn from each other in either a structured or unstructured way? Um, to kind of have like your own like in-house university? So much yeah, valuable. we've got a couple of those. I think we are trying to figure out like how we want to take that up to the next level. Um, we've got, which one, one which is awesome is we've got, you know, Friday uh, demos between like engineering and sales and marketing. And often sales and marketing might, you know, bring a customer in to present about how they're using the product. And like, all that's awesome. I really like that. It's a good place for sort of like centralized folks to talk. We also have uh, an ML reading group. That's, uh, you know, kind of more, more generic stuff. And then we're now starting uh, kind of an archive reading group that's sort of like a very specific like research paper review kind of session. Um, but I, I think it's, it's also a place where like, and I guess we also do have a very like open meeting policy. So we have a lot of meetings that might be customer meetings or something and mark, hey, this is open to engineering. So, you know, we like to have new engineers like see a couple of customer meetings during their onboarding, for instance. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's something that we are trying to figure out how to scale right now, right? Trying to figure out, like, we don't want a huge number of them, but it's also, you know, like 70 or 80 people figuring out, like, what that, what that balance is, is kind of tough. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I guess last question on operationals, um, are, is there an operation problem that you're running into right now or like, uh, something that you recently solved that you wouldn't, they wouldn't mind sharing, you know, cause yeah, so, yeah, sometimes actually. like, it's like people only share like the, you know, uh, the nice things, but like, yeah, what is something that was a pain point and now that you've solved and how did you do it? Yeah. So actually I think on the R and D side, this is a really interesting one where we changed how we thought about R and D as a function. Um, and the, the key problem that we were trying to solve, right, and, and I think a lot of organizations have this issue, is that if you think about R&D as like a portion of the development process, uh, you know, engineering doesn't get plugged in very early, and then the handoff is really messy, and then the time it takes to actually implement the thing and get it out to production is like very, very long, and you, you know, it's bad like and everyone's unhappy with the whole process right um so we tried to ask ourselves okay how do we sort of reimagine what r&d looks like uh so this is this is part of what led to us redefining it's like okay there's r&d at the top level and then there's ml and there's you know ux as two you know sub departments of r&d but actually the key organizational change was a bit different from that it was about tying uh product initiatives to swap teams so the way that we said it instead, it's like, okay, everything should go through product. So that, that was number one, right? Is that like, usually R&D is like off doing its own stuff and they're not directly beholden to product. And we're like, all right, well, we've got a really great product team, right? And, you know, they understand enough about ML and the R&D stuff, right? That, you know, we can actually do this effectively planning through them. So that was, that was step number one. Everyone goes through the same product organization. Uh, step number two is like, as we've got the success criteria around one of these initiatives that's more R&D-E, like we don't know exactly the way to do it, but also actually now a lot of our product initiatives are going to be more R&D-E, is we form a, a SWAT team, right? And so the idea is like, when we define success criteria, before even we have the specific features or the mocks built up, we kind of bring together this group of folks that's like engineering and product and ML and, and UX, right? And, you know, depending on the, the project, you know, it might be a slightly different group of folks, but call it five-ish people. 
that are then responsible for seeing through the problem definition and experimentation uh, through to kind of the engineering point. And then, and then the idea is like they are the quarterbacks through to production, even though they might, you know, kind of bring the rest of the organization into different pieces. So switching to that kind of like SWAT team idea, you know, bringing engineering and product in from the very beginning, you know, twinning them to R&D uh, is just, you know, made a world of difference. Mm -hmm. Sounds very similar to what Pixar does. Um, there's oh, a great really? book. I literally just, uh, I have like a stack of nonfiction behind me. Mm. Uh, I just finished reading. Stop it. I have Way of Kings. That's underneath this book. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. What a coincidence. Yeah. But this book that kind of talks about like they, they use a similar structure. It's called Brain Trust where like, mm. like a movie can be considered like a, uh, like a, your SWAT team where there's all these different people building it. But there's one person who's kind of leading the charge and those people come up and they have meetings where they kind of like check each other and see how they're doing. And they give each other, you know, like this is what might be going wrong, but not like, you know, this is how you should fix it. And then they percolate down and then they keep going with making their individual movies that, you know, for uh, Pixar at least uh, turned out pretty good for them. So no, it seems I, well, like it's that, that makes me feel good. Organism. Yeah. Uh, that, that's super interesting. I, yeah. I had never heard of that before. I, uh, I, I kind of wish I knew it, uh, it, it was a hassle figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a good book. I'd recommend it. They Creativity they, Inc. You said it's called. Yeah. Creativity Inc. Yeah. I like Creativity Inc. And then Work Rules by Lazo Bach would also be a book you'd enjoy. I, it's right okay. across the room. That's why it looks weird. Awesome. Yeah, no, that, that's perfect. I will definitely check that out. That's a, yeah. that's a good tip. Yeah, I, I think it, it seems like in both those, you're already gravitating to the lessons in them. But the nice thing is that they have some of the trials and failures and some of the other things around it, which I think might kickstart you into thinking of other ways to do things as well. Like they were, yeah. they were hugely interested in uh, influencing to me just to get my like, hey, these are things that actually have worked. And I can like experiment, like, are these things that's going to work with us? And then now it's, now I can kind of like do even more because you can kind of see what they've done since then. And so it's kind of fun. Like they're like, yeah, a little tiny, like, we're, like, research we're, on like a, we're on like gen zero of this, right? Yeah. Like I'm sure there's stuff that we're screwing up and it's like a lot better than what we were doing before, but you know, like any lessons on like fine tuning, it's like very useful. Mm -hmm. do, do you have um like an amount of time you allow to elapse where things are happening before you do an analysis of the process, like what you just suggested, uh, outlined? Um, like how much do you yeah. let it live in the wild before you, you see like what's working, what's not. And then, uh, you know, affecting I, I, a patch essentially. Yeah. Like I, I wish I had a, a like formal number yeah. rule for this, Other, but we are really conscious of it, you know, yeah. cause I, I will say that, um, we almost always have been on the wrong, wrong side of that. Right. I think that it, it is, it is tough. You know, I have a really, really high sense of urgency. So, you know, I think that especially in the early days, it's like, we do something, you know, Oh, Hey, you know, we should change this process. I show up tomorrow. I'll be like, everything isn't fixed yet. You know, like what, uh, you know, now obviously like you've got to actually give the process a shot. Um, so I, I think, I think right now we, we just try to be really clear about like, here's when we are making the decision by. Right. And I think that because there's there's challenges on both sides right because like you can't let it go forever you can't be like yeah. you know time really does matter and so you kind of want to understand the shortest possible time where you have real good data um so yeah so we just try to kind of mutually agree be like you know this is a 30-day kind of thing you know this is a 90-day kind of thing but you know some stuff like you know the overall sales process for us you know it's going to be 12 months before we actually get you know the the data like end to end so we've got to like think really critically about like, okay, what are some underlying theses we've got that will kind of signal if we're on the right direction or not? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I have one uh, last question that I just have the rapid fire ones because I know we're coming to the end. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I believe you have some hot takes about venture capital. And so I would just, <laughs> I just, just kind of just want to hear your thoughts on it, uh, on the, on raising, uh, on the field in general and kind of uh, get a sense of, of, of uh, your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, it's like, I, I don't know how hot my, my takes are. It's like, it's hard to tell, but, but I think one of, my, one of my strongest ones is I think that there is too much of a focus on raising as a success metric. Right. Oh, yeah. uh, I think uh, I, I get really, really frustrated, especially when I hear young entrepreneurs come and be like, oh, well, like this model is great because like this company did it and like they raised $20 million. And it's like, you have no idea what's going on there, 
right? Like there's companies that like pop out of nowhere, like raise $300 million pre-revenue, right? And then die the next year, sell for 200 million, right? And like everyone's upset and like the investors don't even get their money back, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think that's really, really important. I think one of, uh, you know, so I, I work with uh, 406, I'm an EIR there. And one of the sayings that one of our partners there uh, had that I, I, I love is startups die of indigestion, not starvation. Um, and I, I think that, especially now that we've gotten a bit bigger and we actually do have a real amount of resources, the truth of that really has become very, very clear to me, right? Is the, the trick really is about focus, right? And not trying to do too much at once. Um, I think that's the biggest issue. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's probably one of the biggest issues. And, and like, frankly, you know, if you're executing well, capital is not going to be the problem, yeah. right? You know, like execution is the problem, and maybe capital will help, uh, but capital is never the goal. And if you think about it as the goal, like you're just not you're not gonna get it done. Yeah. Any uh, well, uh, one thing that I think is interesting is when um, you have competitors, let's say, have raised a lot of money. It's like, great, they get to waste $4 million doing some R&D for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 that, that's the thing, right? And, and, you know, now we've been for like a long time just like slugging it out against mm -hmm. people that are like much better funded than us. And, and and what I will say is just like, just patience, like take a deep breath, stand back, you know, like we had competitors like show up and, and again, literally just like raise hundreds of millions of dollars even, you know, before we had raised even 10, right? And be like, oh my gosh, like what's happening? Like, have they figured something out that we haven't? And most of the time, no, it was just like some VC got really excited and, you know, they all moved together. Right. And so they got a big, big round done, but then the thing blew up, you know, like a year or two later. Um, mm -hmm. So just like, keep your head down, like focus on what you're doing. I think that, I think that people focus too much in most cases with what their competitors are doing, uh, especially if you're in deep tech. Like if, if you're doing something where like you're not solving new technical problems, like research is not an issue, maybe it's different and you do need to be like really aggressive and do a land grab. But if you're doing something meaningful on the technical side, like figuring out how to package and sell that is, you know, the limiting factor. And and, and money actually isn't as helpful uh, as you might think in figuring that out. Uh, it's actually counterproductive in some ways because it makes failure a lot more expensive. Yeah. Do you, um, do you think, I guess, like how you structure your time in terms of uh, venture capital, is it more like finding the right partners versus finding money? It sounds like yes. that's probably like where you like draw the line. Like you're not just out there, like the, the most zeros it's like, who's behind the zeros. That's probably most important. A hundred percent. Right. I, I mean, I think that, um, you really, I mean, I guess everyone's got a different philosophy, right? But the way that I view it is it's number one, like find the best partners possible. Like that's the most important thing, right? Um, and then, you know, it's almost like the size that you're raising should be an output, not an input, right? And you should really be dictating that and being like really, really firm. Um, I, I think something that people don't understand is like, the most likely interaction you're going to have with uh, your investors is your investors wanting you to raise more money than you feel comfortable. Um, I, I'm sure there's some exceptions to that, but that was really weird and felt totally backwards to me when I went mm. through it. Um, but again, you know, it's like, make your business plan, like commit to what you're going to try to do, right? And then make sure that everything is sensible and the numbers, you know, work out and then raise the amount of money that you need. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of companies kind of flame out by just trying to raise as much money as they possibly can. And it's, it's not a good idea. It doesn't work out. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, all right. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll not segue again. Cause I know we're coming to the end. <laughs> I was about to like ask you another, I was like, wait, no, we, uh, we have like three minutes, like stop a little. All right. Um, so uh, I'll ask this one. Cause I know that's the story. It'll take like five minutes. All right. But what is a question that you have that is unanswered that if someone could answer, and this isn't like, the, the deep tech questions we we're talking about earlier, like anything else besides that, like maybe personal, unless all, you're just like machine, like machine code all the way down. But um, what's the question you have that is unanswered that maybe someone listening could answer for you? I, that, that, that is a tough one. I, I, I want to know uh, how to get urban highways removed in Somerville. Uh, it's like, it's, it's a dumb, like very specific thing, but someone might actually know how to do that. Um, there's like a, I don't know, it's like a very specific thing that would make my community better. Yeah. I wonder if there's like an, an like analogous, like permaculture for, uh, urban planning. That's really a really interesting, interesting idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very into permaculture. Like I, I, uh, am sick of only eating, you know, five vegetables or whatever, you know? Yeah. I like uh lazy growing food where you can oh, yeah. just like, if you're building something, let's say you have a farm, mm. if it's permaculture, like that's like 
maybe two. It's like the fun part of your week versus like the drudgery. If it's like a production cool. farm, you have to put a lot of work into it. Like you, you will, it's back, it's backbreaking. Oh yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's completely different, right? It's yeah. like literally like economics on thin margins, like produce as much as you possibly can, like per acre. Right. Because like, you're, again, you're, you're like, you're making, you're making your dollars and cents on, on thin margins, right? Mm-hmm. Like totally different from permaculture where it's like, I'm selling this stuff at, at the farmer's market. Right. And you know, it's like people come here for the weird melons. <laughs> yeah. Or the giant potatoes. Uh, or that, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, just like a, a random stat, like I heard that it used to be in hunter-gatherer, hunter-gatherer times, like an average human would eat something like 70 to 80 varieties of fruits and vegetables and grains in an average week. And now we're down to like seven or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's the thing. I just think like there's there's a lot more variety out there uh, than, than we realize. And there's some like delicious stuff. Yeah. A similar factoid is peasants actually had more time on their hands than us. We, that we, I knew. We work, we work more for less. You yeah. don't even need to work that much. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Really I mean, like maybe, maybe someday we'll go up to, you know, Northern California and just, you know, retreat to the, the communes. Yeah. yeah. The Midwest would be cheaper though. It'd be like a third the cost. Yeah, sorry, you, not, you not, not San Francisco, Northern California. I mean, actual Northern California. Oh. I haven't been up there, so I'll, I'll take your word for it. You should you should check it out. It's it's like the redwood forest up there, but it's like you know very rural. It's right on the Oregon border. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a little tough to get to. There's like a fifty percent chance because it's so foggy that you know your flight into the one airport will get uh will get canceled and or delayed. But uh mm-hmm. you know it's it's worth the trip. Yeah, maybe there's a train that could take us there, but unfortunately not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Are there resources or books that you gift to people to have them understand to help them understand machine learning? Or that you just generally give to people? I I think Cassie Kosterkov does a really, really good job of talking about it. Um, I also think uh, Joy Bualamwini from uh, the Algorithmic Justice League. I think their, their quality is like very, very uh, high quality. Um, and yeah, and, and uh, yeah, I think there are probably some other folks like but but more more research oriented right you know like 90% of probably what I read is uh, is research papers and things of that kind. Okay. Well, you, then you have good days. You get nothing but learning then. Um, I mean, I, I love that, honestly. Like, yeah, well, it's fun. I, uh, whenever I learn something new, my wife thinks that I'm having like, uh, like I was like took cocaine because I start getting <laughs> excited. Like I can use this in so many places. <laughs> oh yeah. There, there's, there's like a special kind of, uh, you know, pleasure when you're 10 clicks deep in a Wikipedia hole, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, last question is what's a thing uh, coming up that we all can kind of keep our ears looking for do you have to like you know, um an announcement is there like a newsletter so like where can we go if there is something coming up and what is that thing kind of like if you want to tease us so oh yeah we, yeah uh, no actually so I've got, I've got two i've got one we're gonna have the first ever unstructured event uh called unstructured happen uh later this year at indico uh but also i'm going to be putting out the unstructured data landscape uh hopefully at the end of q2 um again first first ever annual uh you know it's going to have probably two three hundred companies on it sweet and then uh, to find them, we just go to your website, or do we have to do yeah. anything special? Yeah, yeah, no, it'll, it'll just be on the website. And that was Slater Victoroff. Thank you, everybody, for joining Learn Learnable Show today. So, as you saw, we really did get into writing business, tech, leadership, recruiting, AI, all these topics that I told you about, as well as books. Check the show notes, and you'll see everything that you need to see. Uh, additionally, I have been thinking about adding a number that you can call at the beginning of the podcast, where it's like, if, if you're a subscriber and you have a question, you can just call it, text it. It'll go straight to voicemail because like I'm an introvert and I wouldn't want someone to pick it up. But you can just, you'd be able to call it and leave a, hey, I'm curious about this or I'm having a problem with this. And I'll aggregate them and then make episodes for that type of stuff. I think that'd be pretty cool as a way to like get some more subscriber involvement as well as we're rebuilding the and expanding the YouTube channel. And so we're going to have the long form of these episodes as well as clips, which I think will be fun. If there's a better medium or a way you guys want to enjoy this type of content, let me know. A lot of really great stuff coming out. Really would love some feedback as we make these changes and move forward. Uh, Other than that, I really appreciate you taking the time and listening to me talk on. Uh, This is the end of the show. I hope all of you learned something new today, and I hope you stay curious and learn something as well. If you do learn something new, feel free to message me about it or leave it in the comments. 